33, we're focusing our attention upon verses 1 through 12. years ago, a friend of mine related to me how his home had been vandalized, how he'd had quite a few uh, material possessions taken from his home, and some of them being very sentimental objects to him. The next week, he continued his story. All of his belongings had been recovered. Upon asking how this came to be, he said that a narcotics team happened to make a bust on some uh, drug addict and happened to find all of his belongings in this guy's home. And he ended his, his story by saying it was sure lucky that they were there at that time, the police, and that they happened to find his possessions in the uh, in the possession of this drug addict. It was pure luck that they found it, he said. Was it pure luck, I ask? Was it simply a chance happening that this occurred? You see, many people, and even Christians, use the phrase good luck. Now, they may have very sincere intentions by saying that, they may mean something very good uh, from their perspective in saying so, but it's very, very bad theology to say good luck. It certainly, again, uh, completely contradicts the doctrine of God's sovereignty, as we will see today. Why do circumstances, dear ones, in your life happen the way that they do? Is there a purpose or a plan in all of this world, in this universe, in your specific life, in your marriage, in this church, in this nation, is there a plan? Who is in control of your world? Who governs the nations and individuals, stars and planets? Who governs history and every single event in your life? In the Shorter Catechism, question 11 reads, what are God's works of providence? The answer, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Nothing accepted, nothing excluded, governing and controlling all of his creatures and all of their actions. In answer to the question, who governs all of these things? Who's really in control? There are at least four responses that people could give and maybe four responses that you yourself 
have heard in answer to this question. First of all, some might proffer the, the answer, man is in control of his own destiny. Man rules his life and governs his life. But it ought to be rather obvious to all of us, if we simply take a, the time to think about it, that this simply can't be, that man is in control. How many of our own plans fail day in and day out as we survey what we have planned and did not work out the way that we had planned it? You certainly don't control who your parents will be, what race or nationality you will be. You don't control the aging process or how long you will live. You can't control nature, whether earthquakes or tornadoes or hurricanes or droughts. Who is in control then? Well, it's certainly not man. We can exclude that. Second, uh, people have offered another response to who is in control. Others have responded that fate is in control. There is no plan after all. Everything is pure luck and chance. To which we might say, well, it's purely, uh, if that's the case, it's just simply lucky that the sun came up this morning rather than the moon. It's purely luck that gravity pulls us down rather than releasing us into the, uh, into the atmosphere. Just purely lucky. Because tomorrow it might do just the opposite. It might take us up rather than holding us down. It's only luck that two plus two is four. Because next week two plus two might be five. We see certainly that it's not fate or chance that is in control. This particular position would treat mankind like a small piece of wood in the mighty Niagara Falls being pulled and driven along by some impersonal force, which is taking you who knows where. If fate were in control, dear ones, you would live in absolute, total chaos and confusion. You would never know if what was true yesterday would be true tomorrow. Education and knowledge itself would be impossible, for nothing would remain the same. It would be like trying to make sense out of something that I was saying as I preached to you. It would be like trying to make sense out of my sermon if I were to speak one word in one language, another word, the next word in a different language, a third word in a different, and so on. You wouldn't be able to make any sense out of what I was saying, nor would you be able to make any sense if fate or chance or luck were in control. You'd make no sense at all out of life, there would be no meaning or purpose to anything. It just simply happens that way. Who's in control? Well, it's not fate. The third response, Satan is in control. 
The evil in the world, the catastrophes and tragedies of nature all point to the fact that Satan must control everything. So some might explain. The Bible does speak of Satan as being an evil, powerful, created being. But the Bible speaks of him being exactly that, a created being, not the creator. All of his power that he has has been delegated to him. He cannot act on his own. For example, when Job was tempted by Satan to renounce his faith in the living God. Satan had to obtain permission from God to bring anything that he did bring into Job's life. Is it the one who has to obtain permission who is in control or the one who grants permission that is in control? Furthermore, we see that Satan sifted the apostle Peter like wheat, but he again had to obtain permission from God in order to sift Peter like wheat. Furthermore, if Satan is in control, if he is sovereign, why could he not keep Jesus Christ in the tomb? Because the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ sealed the fate, the doom, the destruction of Satan. If there was anything that Satan should have tried to accomplish, it was certainly to prevent the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because by his resurrection, he demonstrated that he had become victorious over all things, over sin, over death, over hell, and over Satan. Who's in control? Not Satan. Well, the final response to the question, who's in control, is, of course, the biblical answer. God is sovereign. God is in control. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Psalm 103:19. Dear ones, God knows all things. God created all things. God planned and determined all things before creation. And therefore, God controls by his sovereign and most wise and holy will. He controls all things. And the confession and testimony of this church is exactly that, that God is absolutely sovereign. Why? Why do we hold this to be the case? Because this is the testimony that God gives concerning himself in his holy word. Turn with me 
if you have not done so already, to Psalm 33. Psalm 33, where God says and teaches us what we are to believe about his sovereignty. I remember quite a few years now, quite a few years in the past, when I wrestled with this particular issue of God's sovereignty, how I bewailed and moaned the fact that if God is sovereign, he controls not only my destiny, but the destiny of my children and my grandchildren. He controls, therefore, every detail of my life. You see, the problem that I was having was that I thought I could do a better job of controlling my life than God Almighty, all wise and all loving toward me, his child could do. And so I was sad. I was depressed. I went from highs to lows in an emotional state at that particular time. I wept. I came in, as it were, kicking against the goads of the living God who was prodding me all along with this truth that he is sovereign and I do not control ultimately my life. He does. But you know, dear ones, I was absolutely wrong. And by his sovereign grace, I soon learned to rejoice to be happy, to take delight and pleasure in the fact that God Almighty is sovereign. Even as the writer of Psalm 33 takes delight in that doctrine. Psalm 33 is devoted to declaring God's absolute sovereignty over all things. And it does not begin, as you look at the first three verses, declaring the sovereignty of God. It does not begin with a funeral dirge. It does not begin with a pity party. Woe is me. God is in control. God is sovereign. It begins with rejoicing and thanksgiving and praise that God is sovereign and in control. And so. Dear ones, should our attitude be about this most precious and blessed and comforting doctrine for the Christian? Psalm 33 verses 1 through 3 then begin this way. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with heart. Sing unto him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. We should just, before we move on, say something about, I think, the use of instruments there. Uh, because if you are observant at all, uh, you notice we do not use instruments in our worship. And yet it appears that the writer of the psalm is commanding God's people to use instruments. 
in public corporate worship. And we might simply can't make a sermon out of this one point, but just in passing indicate that as you read the various passages in the Psalms concerning instruments, you will find time and time and time again that instruments express joy, the joy of God's people, God's people rejoicing in their salvation, rejoicing in the salvation which God has bestowed upon them, rejoicing in the attributes of God, rejoicing in the blessings of God. For example, in Psalm 149, we find these words in verse 2. But Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. And so we find again that that. Use, the use of instruments in the Old Testament speaks of the joy of God's people, which was to come to realization in its fullness through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we note concerning instruments very quickly that instruments, the use of instruments in corporate worship was limited to temple worship the worship of the tabernacle under Moses and the the worship of the temple under David or Solomon and so forth. For example, one very clear reference, I believe, to the use of instruments and relating this to worship, the temple worship and the sacrificial system is in 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25. 2 Chronicles 29, 25. Here, during the time of Hezekiah, after years in which worship of the living God had fallen into disrepair, Hezekiah restores biblical worship to the temple. Notice what he implements at that time. Verse 25 of Second Chronicles, chapter 29. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with symbols, with psalteries and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad, the king's seer and Nathan, the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets who had the instruments, the Levites. Verse 26, and the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Who had the trumpets? The priests. Verse 27, and Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering from the altar 
And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped and the singers sang and the trumpeters sounded. And all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. In other words, the use of the instruments was in conjunction with the offering of the sacrifices. You say, well, so were the songs that were sung. Yes, that's true. They sang the songs of the Lord, which we would understand to be the Psalms. And so why would we not say that the Psalms, therefore, like the instruments, are specifically related to the Levites and to the temple and the sacrificial system and have been done away with under the Levitical priesthood? Well, because in the New Covenant, God tells us to continue singing his Psalms. But there is no indication at all complete silence with regard to the use of instruments as in the case with the offering of incense. No explicit command in the, in the New Testament to stop offering incense, as the priest did over the altar of incense, or to stop lighting the candles, or to, to stop preparing the table of showbread. No specific instances where that is specifically forbidden. And yet we know all of those things were associated with the Levitical priesthood, the temple. It was the priests who performed those duties, as in the case of the instruments. And so we believe, therefore, as we read such passages in the Old Testament, that God, in calling us to worship him with, with musical instruments, in the new covenant is calling us that we ought to understand we are to be joyful about our salvation. Because Jesus Christ has now accomplished all for his people. And we are to sing in Psalm 33 a new song. This does not refer to the fact that we are to compose new uninspired songs to sing. It doesn't mean that at all any more than when Jesus speaks of a new commandment, that he is speaking of a new uninspired commandment that we are to <clears throat> we are to obey. It is not new in content. The song that we are to sing are not new in content, but new and fresh due to God's redemption and history. God's revelation of his salvation in history. As God continues to show forth his glory and his might, his songs take on even new meaning to us, fresh new meaning that perhaps people in years gone by did not see and understand as clearly. And so they become new to us all the time, but they are the same in content, the songs of God. So we continue through our, our text then. As you consider God's control over all things, there are certain things that God would have you to see and understand from this text. First of all, that God is righteous in all things. God is righteous in all that he does. There is no sin in the Lord at all. In Psalm 33, verses 4 through 5, we read these words from our text. 
for the word of the Lord is right. And all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Why are we to rejoice? Why are we to be thankful and to praise the living God? Because the word of the Lord is right. And all his works are done in truth. Because he is righteous and just in all that he does. We are therefore to rejoice in the living God. As a pastor, I have heard many, many questions like this. If God is righteous and controls all things, why did my baby die? Why must I suffer so much pain? Why must I die such a slow, agonizing death? Why are my children who are raised in a Christian home now rebelling against the very thing which I taught them? Why did my mate, my husband or wife leave me? Why did I fail in my business? Why is there a drought in Ethiopia? Why famine throughout the world? Why do people and nations who are evil prosper? Why, why, why? Well, the answer that the skeptic gives to those questions is this. Either God is sovereign or he's righteous, but he cannot be both. For it is not righteous to permit evil, death and suffering, if God could prevent it. And if God would like to prevent it, but he can't, then he's not sovereign. So humanistic reasoning goes. But the truth, dear ones, is that God is absolutely sovereign and could prevent all evil, death, and suffering if he chose to. And God is absolutely righteous and is using all the things that happen in your life and in mine and in this world to work out his own holy purposes. We can take, for example, the most clear example, I believe, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross, which in one sense was the most heinous sin and crime that was ever committed in all humanity to murder the sinless son of God, one who committed no sin, one who was incapable of sinning, was put to death by cruel, wicked evil men. And yet, on the other hand, though a very great evil and wickedness, God was using even that and had foreordained and declared that that was the way by which he would rescue and save his people through the sacrifice. Because Jesus Christ said, you don't take my life from me. I lay it down. This is to fulfill scripture. 
this was the way in which God had declared and chosen from all eternity that he would accomplish the redemption and salvation of his people. God using the sinful and wicked acts of men freely on their parts, freely worked out and accomplished, but forever determined from eternity to occur in order to accomplish his holy purposes. We need to say concerning the fact that God is righteous, that God, dear ones, did not create evil. God is not the author of sin. He did decree sin for his own holy purposes from eternity. But he did not force Satan or Adam and Eve to sin against their will. They freely chose to sin, and yet God could have prevented that sin had he chosen to. He does not approve of sin. He does not condone sin. It, sin is against his moral nature. Sin is against his moral law and commandments. He does condemn sin, and yet he is righteous and holy in using even sin and Satan for his own holy purposes. This is how sovereign, how mighty our God is. That he remains free of sin himself while using sin for his holy purposes. You see, there was the first step to understanding God's sovereignty is to believe God's own testimony. Namely, that the Lord loves righteousness and everything he says and does is righteous. If you don't get beyond that particular step, you won't go any further. Do you believe that God is righteous? That God is holy in all that he says and does? That is fundamental to being a Christian. Is God righteous and just? Or is he wicked and evil? There are no other options. Who is our God? The Bible declares, God declares concerning himself, he is holy and righteous. Do you believe that even when your finite mind cannot comprehend the secret ways of an absolutely righteous and sovereign God? You see, that's what we must all fall back on because we all wrestle with those kinds of questions at one time in our life or another. But what we ultimately fall back on is that God is righteous. He is holy. The second thing that this text teaches concerning God's sovereignty is that God has created all things. Nothing exists that was not created by God except God himself. In verses 6 through 9, Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9, we, we read these words. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, 
and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. Dear ones, does it not make sense that since man did not create all things, man cannot control all things? That since chance is not responsible for the creation of all things, chance cannot control all things? Since Satan did not create all things, Satan cannot control and govern all things. But since God alone created all things, he alone controls all things. The almighty power of God that spoke a non-existent universe into existence by the word of his power can certainly control, dear ones, every detail of his universe because he's created it. This is a truth, dear ones, we can teach our children. A, tr a truth which they can learn at a very, very early age that God made all things. You see, if they understand that truth, the next step God, therefore, governs and controls all things will be a natural result. They'll understand that very clearly. If you take them out into uh, the night as they observe the various stars, the glory of the heavens all around them and how small we are in comparison in this mighty, vast universe. You point to all that you see and you ask your small child, who made that all? Who made everything that you see? And as they respond, God did. They will grow even from that very basic elementary truth to understand, therefore, God must control all things if he created all things. And so understanding the sovereignty of God, dear ones, begins with understanding God as creator. He's created it all. The third point from this text is that God has a plan for all things that he has created. Verses 10 through 12. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Can you imagine a God of infinite wisdom and power who would create a world without a definite plan for that world? That's unthinkable. <clears throat> Even we as mere human beings 
have enough sense to make plans, though they may, may often be foiled and changed because we're not sovereign, we're not wise, we don't know the beginning from the end, we can't ultimately control our own destiny, but we do nevertheless make plans. How many of you, for example, when you go on vacation, simply hop in the car, turn on the key, and head out not knowing where in the world you're going. Not having looked on the map and said, we want to, that's our destination. That's where we want to go. And this is the, this is the way in which we're going to get there. You see, even sinful, finite human beings make plans. Or can you imagine an architect not forming plans, not making drawings to the minutest detail if he was going to build a huge skyscraper? Well, the universe is hardly a huge skyscraper. The planets, the stars, the sun, the moon, History, salvation, every detail in our life to the point of our, the number of our hairs, every sparrow that falls to the ground, having been ordained and determined by the living God, certainly the vastness of history and the universe is far greater than a, a mere skyscraper, how much more God has determined, and even according to his own revealed will, has determined all things. As the word of God says in Ephesians chapter 1, he works all things after the counsel of his own will. Ephesians 1.11 Concerning the, the decreed plan, the working out of that plan in the universe and in history and in your life and mine. Notice, first of all, in verses 10 through 11, that it is, in fact, his plan, not ours. Notice what the psalmist says concerning this plan. The Lord bringeth the counsel or the plans of the heathen to not. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. Though the nations may, may arouse themselves and seek to overcome and crush the church of Jesus Christ, to throw off the fetters and, uh, of the living God from them, God makes the counsel and the plans of the heathen to not. To come to nothing. It is God who raises up those who rule and puts down princes, who causes nations to come into being and destroys nations. It is not the counsel of the mighty. It is the counsel of the almighty. That is working and brings to fruition that plan. It is his plan. 
We find in verse 11, the counsel of the Lord, the plans of God, dear ones, stand forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. Notice as well, under this plan that God has, that he had no counselors, he had no advisors, or he had no PR man to ask him. Now, God, uh, how do you think the world will perceive this part of your plan for the universe, for that person's life? There was no one around. God had no counselors. He took no public opinion polls. For God says in his word that he works, again, all things according to the purpose of his own holy will. Notice also concerning this plan in verse 11, that his plan is eternal and unchangeable. In verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth for how long? Forever. It is eternal. Therefore, God, dear ones, is not surprised by anything that happens in your life or mine. He's not surprised at anything that happens in the church or in the nations. <clears throat> For his plan is forever, from eternity to eternity. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 9 and 10. God declares this. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. You see, this passage doesn't say, God sees the end from the beginning. It says God declares the end from the beginning. God doesn't simply, according to the Arminian view, foresee what will occur. He declares and decrees the end from the beginning. From ancient times, he declares my counsel, my plan will stand. The mere puny plans of man's finite mind cannot overcome the eternal plan of God for his people and for this world. God doesn't need any erasers because God makes no mistakes. God is infinitely wise, dear ones. He's infinitely holy. He knows all things. And his plan for your life and for mine has no mistakes in it. A lot of hard bumps. A lot of painful experiences. But for those who know the living God, those who are the children of God, he causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. God will never, ever have to apologize to you or to me for even one detail in his plan for your life or mine. There are no mistakes and there are no accidents. God is working out his sovereign will. 
even down to the smallest and minutest detail, is said concerning Robert the Bruce of Scotland, that it was a mere spider weaving its web while he was incarcerated that caused him to persevere, to see how tedious of a work and how, as that spider continued to work, even when it appeared the spider failed, it continued. It kept on going. But that spider encouraged this leader so that he became a national leader in Scotland in reviving and restoring liberties to that nation. A mere spider, purely accidental. God put that spider there to encourage Robert the Bruce. John Knox himself. Happened to move from a window to pick something up. And as he moved immediately, a bullet flew where he was sitting. Purely coincidental, so some would say. God preserved the life of John Knox because God had many wonderful and important things for John Knox to accomplish in bringing reformation to Scotland. Dear ones, you are immortal until God's plan is finished with you. You cannot perish. You cannot die until God is finished with you and all that he would have you accomplish. The third thing concerning this plan is that his plan, according to verse 10, includes all human actions <clears throat> the Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught and maketh the devices of the people of none effect whatever their devices whatever their plans God makes it of none effect <clears throat> Someone might respond, if it includes all of human actions, doesn't that make man a mere puppet on a string or simply a programmed robot? God says no, not at all. You have a will which acts according to the desires of your own heart and the capabilities of your own nature. You have a will in that respect. Your will with respect to doing that which is righteous before becoming regenerate is bound by sin so that you do not even desire that which is righteous and holy and good. But even the unregenerate man has a will to do what he chooses to do, even though those choices may be many options amongst things that will not bring God glory. He still can choose between those options. And so your actions, dear ones, are free. And yet your actions at the same time, according to God's word, are predestined and determined from all eternity. A mystery, you say? Yes. A mystery, a contradiction. No, 
not a contradiction. It's one of the glories of God's infinity, the fact that God is infinite, that he, even though with this puny, finite mind, cannot fully resolve all of these mysteries of God's person and nature and truth, the fact that it is the truth shows me that God is not a mere human being like me. Because if he was, I could understand it. I could comprehend it, but I cannot fully comprehend the living God because he is infinite. It would be like trying to take a seashell and put the whole ocean into that seashell to put the mysteries and the secret counsels of God into this puny, finite mind. Impossible. But it is a truth to be believed, nevertheless. Though God, dear ones, has predestined all things according to his unchangeable plan, you are yet responsible to obey God's holy and revealed will as found in the scriptures. So that if you sin or if I sin, we cannot blame God for he did not hold a gun to our head and force us to sin. We must repent. We must confess our sin before God. It is, in fact, the, the truth that God is sovereign that establishes that we are responsible before a sovereign and righteous God. And we will answer to him on that final day. Furthermore, dear ones, you cannot excuse yourself from any duty or responsibility which God has given to you because God is sovereign. You can't excuse yourself from proclaiming the truth to your neighbor. You cannot exclude or excuse yourself from praying for those things that God has commanded us to pray for just because God is sovereign and he'll work out all his holy pleasure because God uses means to accomplish his ends. God uses second causes to accomplish that which he has determined to work out from all eternity. The second causes, the means that he has chosen to use are you and me to bring about those ends so that not only are his ends foreordained and determined, but all the means to those ends as well. <clears throat> the true story is told of a Mohammedan taxi cab driver who drove at top speed through a crowded uh, a section of town, very narrow streets, just missing cars on one side and people on the other side. And when the passengers tried to get him to slow down to a safer speed, you know, he responded, whatever Allah wills will happen regardless of the way in which I drive. That's not the responsibility which God declares that we as Christians are to have. That's irresponsibility. Because again, if God is not sovereign, if God is not righteous and holy, if God is not just, then there is no need 
to obey God. We can do however we please. Certainly, Mohammedans believe in a sovereign uh, Allah. But they relieve themselves in this whole issue of their responsibility. One example that I believe is very helpful in understanding responsibility and God's sovereignty is in the very writing of the Holy Scripture. God sovereignly controlled those inspired writers of Scripture so that they wrote exactly what he wanted, though he did not dictate to them as a, uh, a boss dictating a letter to a secretary. They wrote that God controlled every word that they wrote so that when the product was finished, it was exactly what God had determined and declared would be the case from all eternity. It was perfect. Written by human hands, it was perfect. <clears throat> God did not uh, force uh, man's uh, the apostles, the prophets, he did not force, as it were, their arm behind their back. They used their own mind. They declared from their particular vantage point the truth. But God all along was keeping them from error. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility met in the writing of the scripture as well. <clears throat> Finally, dear ones, the last point simply is this. God's plan for your life as a Christian is one of blessing. In verse 12, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance. Blessed. God says, beloved, all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Not some things in your life, but all things. Not for all people in the world, but for you who love him. You who are the called of Jesus Christ, who have put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for your eternal salvation, who are clinging to Jesus Christ and his righteousness, clinging to his death and his resurrection and not your own works of righteousness, seeing that all of your works are as filthy rags and therefore you must cling to one who is righteous. To those who do so, God promises his word is stamped upon it. He will work all things for your good. Not some things, but all. Joseph told his brothers after they had sold him into slavery and after the whole plan had been worked out where Joseph was raised in Egypt to become second in command. And after Jacob died and Joseph's brothers were now kind of shaking in their sandals as to what Joseph would do to them because they had many years ago sold him into slavery. Will he now pour out revenge upon us? Will he try and get even with us now? 
Joseph told his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Genesis 15, 50, 20. How many things, dear ones, in your life and mine have people meant it for evil, but God means it for our good? Do you have that perspective about what is occurring in your life? The people of God here. Ought to have, therefore, an optimistic and joyful outlook about the future. We ought to smile with confidence at the future because we know that God is sovereign and in control. The one who loves us and sent his son to die for us is the one who is directing all things to his own holy ends and for our good. You see, the Son of God knows what it is to go through very difficult times as well. You're not the only ones who travail. You're not the only ones who experience pain and heartache and disappointment. The Lord Jesus Christ, the living God and man, he suffered upon this earth. And yet God through everything that Jesus Christ suffered, was using it for the good of his people. He was using it, even the wicked acts of man, to bring glory to himself. Now, we can very clearly look at the scripture and say, I see that. I see how God was using all those things. But we're so blind to our own circumstances and situation. We have a very selective memory when it comes to our own suffering, don't we? God, help us to reflect upon these truths, therefore. And so, dear ones, rejoice this day. Rejoice and be glad in your sovereign God. For life has meaning and purpose, and we can look to the future with hope and confident and certain expectation about the future. Because the father who loves us and adopted us into his family is the one who controls all things. And so I exhort you as God's people, trust him and obey him. Submit all of your ways unto him. There is nothing that is more sane and intelligent and reasonable than to trust the living God. It is not a blind leap of faith. It is reasonable beyond a shadow of a doubt because God cannot lie. And he is sovereign and just and wise and loving. Let God be God. Be faithful in all that you do, but let God be God. Be responsible in all that you do, but let God be God. Be obedient. 
but let God be God. Let us stand in prayer. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.